If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 7. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 7. We're going to look together at verses 1 through 6. We are now in the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount and just a few weeks away from having completed, Lord willing, this series of sermons that I have found to be encouraging and helpful for me practically, even in preparing them for you, and I hope that you have been refreshed and helped along the way. The difficult thing about sermons is not preparing them and it's not preaching them, it's performing them, it's doing what the scripture requires of us, and certainly the Sermon on the Mount has had a refining effect in my life, and I hope the same is true for you. Back in the 70s and 80s, those who study such things said that America's favorite Bible verse is John 3.16, that God has so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I have to believe that at least part of the popularity of that verse might be attributed to Billy Graham and his ministry in those decades. But even for me, as a small child in the 80s and getting of an age where I really enjoyed sports and athletics in the 90s, I can hardly remember watching a baseball game or a football game where there was not a John 3.16 sign, a banner, somewhere on the, in the stands. Today, those same folks who study such things tell us that America's new favorite Bible verse is Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, I'm okay with America choosing most any Bible verse for a favorite Bible verse. I'm just glad someone loves the Bible. But I would like for us together this morning to wrestle with what is intended by our Savior in these verses and to make good, wholesome gospel application of these truths in each of our lives and collectively as a congregation. If you found your way to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, I would invite you now to stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 1, here's what the Bible says. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye? Hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet. Turn and tear you to pieces. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There are all kinds of misconceptions that are born out of these verses, right? Like I was in my teenage years in the 90s, like the great decade, you know? And the mantra of society in those years and even until now is something along the lines of only God can judge me. As a Christian, my thought in response to that kind of statement, to that mantra, is always, I'm not sure that's going to have the outcome that you're suggesting. Even within Christian circles, we say things about ourselves like, well, God knows my heart. And again, as a Christian, my thoughtful response to that is always, yes, he does. But that again will not have the outcome that you're suggesting. 
Our hearts are wicked. God does know our heart. Knowledge of our heart only contributes to the weight of judgment against us for our sin. The only hope that we have is grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of misunderstandings of these verses. I hope we can sort of right the ship a little this morning and wrestle with what it means for Jesus to have said what he says. How do we make application of this whole concept in our personal life? Look to verse 1. Jesus says plainly here, do not judge so that you won't be judged. What does that mean? Well, among other things, it certainly means do not judge others in a harsh or overly critical manner. Don't be ungracious in your assessment or evaluation of others. It seems to me that there's sort of a road of wisdom, gospel wisdom, what Jesus describes that's sort of down the middle. And then there are a couple of ways that we can be in error or we can fall off into the ditch. On the one hand, there are those who say on the basis of this passage that we can exercise no judgment or discernment whatsoever. Who are we to call anyone to any standard? Call a friend, a neighbor, even a close friend, a neighbor, a brother or a sister. We are all sinners, and therefore we have been handcuffed. We have been rendered incapable of passing any judgment whatsoever. That's one ditch that you might veer into and be in error with regards to what Jesus describes here in our passage. And then there's the other side, recoiling at the other ditch, reacting, overreacting to the other ditch. There's want to be so harsh and so critical to pass judgment on every issue that comes up that we wind up losing our salt, losing our effectiveness as light, losing gospel grace, and therefore losing our gospel voice within community. Both of these are in error, right? And both of these are the kind of errors that I hear Christian folks sort of veering into. What I want us to do is, is to find the road. To realize here that discernment is a necessary part of our Christian journey. And at the same time, that that kind of harsh, severe rhetoric ought not be a part of the Christian journey. Like, you don't have to speak on social media to every culture war issue that arises. I hope I can say this without violating the spirit of what Jesus is describing in this passage. But if a, per, if a body is struggling with the gender identity of Mr. Potato Head, it is not necessary for you to engage that issue. Trust me, there is a deeper abiding issue in that person's life, namely the absence of Jesus and a need for the gospel that provides clarity and vision and understanding and godly wisdom. So let the potato head thing lie, right? Just let that be. And let's deal with gospel issues. Let's be salt and light. Let's be gracious in our interactions with those around us. Surely this is at least part of what Jesus intends in verse number one. Surely Jesus intends that we would evaluate others with grace. Like that when we're interacting, we would be gracious in, in how we interpret what they say, gracious when we interpret what they do. You've surely noticed this in political discourse, but this is also true within the Christian community. We, we tend to look for confirmation of our biases, either for or against the person in the things that they say, looking for that gotcha moment where our biases can be confirmed in the words of the one that we might be prejudiced against. This ought to never be so among Christian folks. 
When we, when we think about how our, how, how our actions are evaluated, we almost assume that we'll be judged on the basis of our intentions or, or the many variables, the circumstances of life leading up to that moment, but we almost never evaluate the actions and the words of others on the same basis. Like if I, if I offended you today and you came to me this afternoon or tomorrow and said, Pastor, you offended me in this way. Almost always my first response is, well, that was not my intention. We look first to what we intended to do. We all know where the road to good intentions will take you, but that's a story for another day, right? And, and, and then I might say, if, if you caught me on a bad day, if we just ran across one another and I was in the throes of dealing with a terribly complex situation or something dreadful had happened in my life, I, I might seek to somehow subtly justify my interaction with you on the basis of what was going on in my life. We always judge ourselves with remarkable grace, but we're almost never willing to grant the same kind of judgment to those around us. And I would just remind you that whether it's interpreting what someone says or interpreting their actions, the golden rule stands that we ought to interpret the words and the actions of others the way we would have our words and actions interpreted ourselves. right? Y'all tracking with me this morning? One among many of the things that Jesus intends by this idea of judge not lest you be judged is that we would hear and interact with those around us with great gospel grace. Look at what verse 2 says. Jesus continues here, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this is my children's interpretation of the golden rule. What you did to me, now I'm about to do to you. What Jesus is saying is that there's some reciprocity here. Like, if, if you're always meeting out heavy, harsh judgment, if you are critical toward those in your life, there's a strong likelihood that they're going to return that criticism as opportunity presents itself. But there's really even more than that. This is another one of those two-layer statements from Jesus. That's true, that others will likely judge you the way you've judged them. But there's, a, again, another layer, and, and, and here it is. If you are rendering judgment, you are illustrating that you have a knowledge, a level of insight with regards to that issue that makes you accountable to the sta same standard by which you are judging. You are demonstrating an awareness of what is right or wrong in that particular area and therefore are responsible for maintaining that standard in your personal life. Jesus says in a certain text later in the Gospel of Matthew that to whom much is given, much is required. The Gospel makes it fairly clear, all four Gospels, that it's better for the one who never heard the Gospel than for the one who heard again and again and again and rejected the free grace of Jesus out of hand. Indeed, to whom much is given, much is required. And in all of our exacting judgment, in all of our rendering or passing measurement on others, what we're truly demonstrating is that we are fit for, we should be called to live up to the, the standard by which we judge those around us. Now look at verse 3. Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye. Now Jesus asked this rhetorically. What he's speaking to is this incredible ability that we have as human beings 
to see someone else's sin when we cannot see our own. This is an experience common to man, right? For those of you married men here, you have the great benefit of a wife who has a much more effective eye for identifying your sin than you do. I say that partly in jest, but, but there's a lot of truth to that. Most of the time, when there's some disagreement at the Stevens house, she is right and I am wrong. And most of the time, it's because, yes, I hear you, I hear you. Most of the time, there's an ability on her, her part to see something in me that I was unaware of. Now, the fact of the matter is, it works on the opposite as well. Usually, when she's in error, it's, it's my ability to see something in her that she didn't see in herself. It's, there's just something about the sin in us. There's something about the way we evaluate our own words and actions that's different than the way we evaluate the words and actions of those around us. There, there's this incredible experience, a shared human experience, where we tend to see the sins of others far more clearly than we see our own. Now, Jesus asked the question rhetorically, but we could provide an answer. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? And the answer is the blinding power of sin. The blinding, of, the, the blinding power of sin. That's why you don't see it. This is why the one that you wish to take the gospel to cannot see that the decisions that they're making for themselves are leading to destruction, and there is no other outcome. It's the blinding power of sin. Coming to Christ is acknowledging our blindness. Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you'd be able to see. If you would humbly acknowledge your inability to see the depth of your own sin, it would open this great window to see Christ for who he is, and your desperate need is met in him at the cross. You, you may have judged yourself to be a morally superior person to most folks around you, and maybe on some level you are. But that does not negate the fact that you are a broken and miserable sinner and that your restoration, your salvation can only come through the, sh the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what I think is really important to note in these verses is that this commandment, judge not lest you be judged, and the conversation that Jesus has opened in verses 3 and 4 is not a call to ignore the sins of others. Brothers and sisters, you need very real accountability in your life. You need accountability in your life. In fact, one of the many things that the church is to function to do is to provide accountability. Your connect groups, the small groups that you're involved in, and to a, 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 some extent, this large body here this morning, we function to provide accountability one for another. You need that in your life, right? Yes, you need that in your life. And you need to be careful. If you are concerned with personal righteousness, and the people of God ought to be concerned with personal righteousness, you ought not only to seek out accountability through your small group and the local church, you ought to position yourself. You ought to take a posture that makes those around you open to come to you with issues when they see you drifting in the direction of sin. Jesus provides for us in verse 5 what I believe to be a two-step process for dealing with the presence of sin in our life. What we want to do is say, no, we can dismiss this whole judgment business. But that is not what Jesus calls us to. In verse 5, he calls us all hypocrites. And then he says, first take the log out of your eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So if you're looking around and you see a brother with a speck, the first thing to do is to examine your face and make sure there are no boards protruding from your face. To do everything within your power to purge yourself of sin, to remove the log from your own eye. That is step number one. And I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, far too often the force of step one, what it requires of us personally, is the reason we never get to step number two. Can I tell you the responsibility that I bear as a pastor that I enjoy the least? There's a lot of responsibilities as a shepherd that I enjoy that are competing for first place. It depends on what week it is, right? But way down at the bottom, way down at the bottom, is the obligation that I bear and all of our pastors bear to call a spade a spade with regards to sin, especially when members of the body are engaging in public sin. There's nothing about that process that is fun for me. Can I tell you, among many reasons, it's because it really calls for a sober and honest examination of my own heart. You can't do step two in assisting your brother with the speck in his eye unless or until you've done step one and removed the log from your own. And a great deal of the reason for the complete absence of any church discipline in so many American churches is an unwillingness on the part of the church and an unwillingness on the part of leadership to do what Jesus describes here in step one and to purge the sin from our own life, remove the logs from our own eye. We need it. We need it, right? We need this level of accountability. You purge yourself of sin. You pray and you seek the face of God. You claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You humble yourself and then you quietly and, and humbly approach your brother in sin and seek to assist him in purging his life of this sin. You need that level of accountability. I'm not sure that we are always aware of this reality, but, but here's some news for you. As a Christian, as a member of the body of Christ, there is no scenario where we say with regards to our personal sin that it's none of anyone else's business because it is someone else's business. And I would remind you of the experience of the army of Israel just having crossed over the Jordan River into the land that God had promised them, now under the leadership of Joshua the general. They go up against the city of Jericho, well-fortified, great walls. Really, Jericho should have been quite a match for the army of Israel, but God gave them one of the strangest battle plans to ever be concocted. They march around and around and around the city, and God gives them the victory. One of the things that God had instructed them with regards to Jericho, given that it was to be their first victory in the promised land, was that the goods, the materials, and the livestock of Jericho were to be offered to God as a tithe. It was the first fruits of the plunder of the promised land. God forbade them from taking anything away from the city of Jericho. But a man named Achan determined that he needed to have some of those forbidden things. And he brought out a few possessions and he buried them in the depths of his tent. And just days later, the army of Israel was to go up against Ai, 
which is sort of a suburb of the city of Jericho. If they'd beaten Jericho, Ai should have been no problem at all for the people of Israel. It is just this military outpost. It would have been a place for them to store weaponry and other goods that would have been useful in providing for the needs, serving the greater needs of the city of Jericho. And that small military encampment defeated the army of Israel and sent them running for their life. Joshua helps us to interpret theologically the experience of the people of Israel. Their victory at Jericho was the product of God's work among them. And their defeat at Ai was the product of forbidden things in their midst. It was sin in the camp that led to their judgment and defeat in the city of Ai. Brothers and sisters, hear me carefully and hear me closely. Your personal pursuit of personal righteousness, your want for sanctification and holiness in your life contributes to the power and the effectiveness and the efficiency of God's work in our body as a whole. Your sin is not only your business, it is the business of the body because it can contribute to or detract from the power and the presence of the Spirit in our midst. God's Spirit is pleased to dwell among the holiness of His people. Your sin matters. You need accountability. I need accountability. And it's wise for us to position ourselves such that other brothers and sisters feel the liberty to speak into our life with regards to sin, that we can walk together in lockstep seeking the face of Jesus and the righteousness that can only come as a product of his Spirit's work among us. First, remove the log from your eye. Second, See clearly to assist in the removal of the speck from your brother's eye. Now, there are some who struggle with verse 6 and how it's placed here in the passage, and some see a disconnection from its context altogether. I happen to think that verse 6 is a, a beautiful and wise and winsome way for Jesus to punctuate this paragraph. Look at what Jesus says. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. For, the, for those who are off in the ditch, if we can exercise no judgment whatsoever, I would have you to know that judgment is essential in determining who the dogs and the hogs are here, right? Jesus says at the end of this section, do not give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls before the swine. He says this immediately after this conversation about accountability that, that exists between brothers. You take the log out of your eye, you assist the brother in removing the speck. Now, I think what Jesus is saying, among many other things, in verse number six is the Christian has no obligation to continue to beat his head against a brick wall in dealing with a person who stubbornly will not turn away from their sin. I would add to that, there's probably not a whole lot of cases where that is the case. In the ministry of Jesus, there's only one episode that comes to my mind. Jesus speaks boldly before every gathering that's brought before him. Jesus speaks boldly before ever, every governing authority except one. Herod, who had rejected the gospel again and again and again and again, and who had called for the execution by beheading of John the Baptist. Jesus stands as a sheep before his shearer, silent before Herod. 
These cases are rare, but they do exist. And in the event that there's someone in your life who is absolutely obstinate, resistant to the preaching of the gospel, they simply will not hear. You're no longer under an obligation to run your head into that wall over and over and over again. Now, there are a couple of Proverbs that have always been favorites of mine. One of them says... Answer a fool according to his folly. The other proverb says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. One of them means that when you see someone who is behaving foolishly, it would be a good and helpful thing for you to go to them and to tell them about their foolishness, to help them to see the error of their way, and to be restored to a right frame of mind. The other says that when you see someone who is behaving foolishly and they are committed to their foolishness, you will only do damage to yourself or your testimony and continually going to them again and again and again and again. Now, knowledge is to know those two proverbs. Knowledge is to know what Jesus says. But wisdom is to know when to do which proverb. I think that's exactly what Jesus is describing in this passage, there are times when you must answer a fool according to his folly. And there are times when you should not answer that fool according to his folly. May God grant us the wisdom and discernment and direction of his Holy Spirit to know when to do which proverb. There really is no shortage. Well, maybe there's something of a shortage, but it's not excessive. Of men and women who will speak boldly and courageously what is true. There, those folks are out there. I'll do it. I'm, I'm game. There's a bunch of you out there this morning. There's certainly no shortage of people who would have us to cast off restraint, live in absolute liberty with no moral judgment, with no standard of righteousness whatsoever. Those people are out there in spades. But there are very few people, it seems, who have taken the road of wisdom who've managed to keep it between the ditches and to speak with courage and with boldness the truth of the gospel to hold high the standard of God and to maintain gospel grace in the process. I think it's a really good idea to invite some brothers and sisters to speak into your life with regards to this issue. Some of the boldest evangelists, and I'm just talking about people who would share, some of the most bold and courageous people that I've ever known with regards to evangelism. There have literally been times when I thought, I wish he wouldn't tell anybody he's a Christian. I want everybody to share the gospel as a pastor. I want people to go and, and share the gospel. But there are times when I think I wish they'd be a little more discreet about that. It, it, you, you can't see it for the same reasons you see someone else's sin more clearly than your own. But listen to me, if, if we go the way of gospel proclamation with boldness and with courage, seasoned with gospel grace, we'll find that we have a valid voice in our community. We'll find that there really is an interest in hearing what the Scripture has to say about the message of Jesus Christ and the salvation that can come by Him and by Him alone. But, but if you are hell-bent on offending the world around you over Mr. Potato Head, of all things. It's really very seldom that you're going to have a voice in the community. What we're calling for here, what, what Jesus, I believe, is directing us to here is the kind of wisdom that keeps us between the lines, that helps us to know which proverb is appropriate for the occasion.
Would you join me in praying that God would give us that kind of discernment, that kind of gospel grace? Let's pray. Father, help us to know how to make the most appropriate application of your word in every situation in our life. We certainly don't want to shrink back from heralding the message of the gospel. We don't want to be regarded as making concessions with regards to your holy standard. We want to do what is right by you. Lord, we want to do it with gospel grace, with mercy and compassion. Lord, with a perspective that is sympathetic toward those around us who live in great sin because we are ourselves great sinners. God, help us to strike the balance that I believe Jesus is describing in this passage. Help us to honor this text and many others. Lord, as we do, as we labor to to love those around us, to be serious about your word and yet benevolent in our judgment of others, God, would you grant us a gospel increase? Lord, give us a voice with the community around us. Help us, Lord, to share a salt and light of the life-saving and life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May your kingdom advance across the street and around the world through the faithfulness of your people. God, forgive us where we come short of this standard. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.